0: It was like nothing I'd ever seen. It was just a hole and basically the the whole boat fell off into it. It was a rogue wave. And within a couple minutes, we were in the water without distress call, EPIRB, life raft, life jackets, nothing.
1: Hello and welcome to the Power and Motor Yacht podcast. This is your host, Shane Scott, senior editor here. And today we're talking about a very special story. In 1998, while out on a 56-foot Jim Smith fishing boat called the Aninga, Johnny Savage, a longtime fisherman, and his captain, Eric Bingham, faced a massive rogue wave that wrecked their ship and left them floating alone with miles around them with nothing but ocean in any direction. This is the story of what might be only the second rogue wave ever documented in history, and how two men fought to survive its aftermath. Not only that, but for the many that heard this story years later, even up to today, there's countless stories of survival based off of this inspiration. So it's a wonderful story. Can't wait to share it with you. And before I do, I just want to mention a fairly new sponsor for us, Imtra. They are the largest distributor of Sleipner thrusters in the world. IMTRA is proud to offer their latest innovation in DC electric thrusters, the E-Series. Sleipner, formerly known as Side Power, had developed their E-Series thrusters with the first electric motor design specifically for marine thrusters use and combined it with their proven gear leg design and Q-Prop skew propeller to deliver performance and runtime never seen before in a DC thruster. So learn more about this at IMTRA.com. Today, I'm here with Johnny Savage. So Johnny, who is located in Virginia, is a safety director for a paving company, and he's a longtime fisherman. He's been doing commercial fishing since about 1989, and he's got quite a story. And in fact, it's a story that he's been going around the U.S. and many places and sharing with many different types of people, many different backgrounds uh, to help save lives. And I think that's something that we all need to hear about. So without further ado, uh, Johnny, thank you for being here with us today. How are you?
0: Thank you, Shane. I really appreciate it. I mean, I, I've always loved Power Motor Yacht Magazine. Just that's one of the ones that seems like it's always uh, on the stack there in the in, in the salon. Always like picking it up and reading your articles. And you actually, uh, y'all have done an article on this story. Um, it was one related to a gentleman that was having a boat build. His name was Perry Nichols. Um, boat was called Not Done Yet. Um, where he is uh, paraplegic, and uh, really cool. I love y'all the work y'all did on that on that story.
1: Oh, but man. yeah, just
0: I'm tickled to be here.
1: Yeah, thank you, thank you for your kind words, and uh, thank you for your time. And yeah, just just to get things going off the bat to help you introduce yourselves to everybody, uh, why don't you tell everybody a bit about what you do?
0: Okay, uh, I'm, I'm a I'm kind of freelance now as far as uh, running boats. Uh, fished here mainly out of Virginia, out of Rudy Inlet, offshore fishing from uh, tuna, dolphin, and marlin. Uh, charter fished out of here. Shoot, I guess uh, you know so I started off working on a head boat back in the uh, early or or. or Late 80s, um, switched over in the early 90s to charter fishing for the offshore, just wanted to get a, a little piece of that glory. But it was, and, and worked through that and um, end up to where I was, you know, in college, still had the, was a perfect opportunity to charter fish out of uh, Virginia Beach in Oregon, and Oregon Island. And from there, after I've graduated, I decided I was going to go to Palm Beach. Actually, the Department of Defense had offered me a position as an industrial hygienist, and I told them, look, I'm going fishing. And uh, I end up going down there and starting my career uh guess more more in inter- the, the the circuit, which back then it would have been East Coast for us mainly, then Bahamas, Mexico, and then uh back to the East Coast again.
1: Okay. So yeah, a lot a lot of fishing experience uh in, in Johnny's uh past and present and you know one of one of the greatest experiences of all he's gone through and and uh Johnny, why don't you share about what you've been through that's, that's moved so many people. I know he's hes told me briefly, and, and it's even something he's written about, but it certainly has you know, quite a history to he, even have gotten to that point. So um, why don't you touch on that, Johnny?
0: Okay, so uh, in 1998, uh, this is a story that uh, pretty much touched the entire sport fishing industry. Uh, most people did know about it then. So we were staged in Key West, bound to make the crossing over to Cancun, and typically back then, it was, of course, boats didn't have the fuel that they have today, and they didn't have the speed they had today, so it was typically a two-day trip. Uh, I was working on a beautiful Jim Smith boat called the Aninga for Captain Eric Bingham, a great, great, great captain. And uh, we set, April 13th, 1998, we set underway to, you know, just before light, to, to be able to be up and running um, as the sun came up. And we were up and running about nine o'clock, we looked in front of us, and it's like nothing I've ever seen before. It was like a like a like a whole ocean is the best way to describe it. So we were in a two to three foot following sea, and and the Jim Smith, you know, is, is known for being a, an amazing following sea boat. And uh, it was like nothing I'd ever seen. It was just a hole, and basically the the whole boat fell off into it. It was a rogue wave, and within a couple minutes we were in the water without distress call, EPIRB, life raft, life jackets, nothing, and uh, she she was down. Um, there was, of course, during that process of her going down, you know, we basically, a lot of people ask about the wave. And I don't know of any boat that could have made it through there. I, you know, I had, in writing the book, I had done some research. And, and part of that research was that, you know, a three-meter wave has, what is like a ton and a half per meter um, square of a force. And then you when you get to a 12-meter wave, 36 feet you're looking at six, six tons per meter squared. But then when you look at a rogue wave, uh, the calculations say it's a hundred tons per meter squared. So the, these boats aren't built for that. I mean, ships aren't even built for that. And um, when the boat fell off into the wave and it wasn't a situation as we approach the wave, like, you know, sometimes if we have a ground swell, when we're running, like as you're going, like typically with a, like a hurricane swell is a great example. When you're running, you know, you'll, You'll feel the boat laboring. You'll feel your RPMs drop because it's struggling with gravity going up. And then, of course, you come down the back side of it, you know, the the revolutions increase and the, as you're going down. wasn't anything like that. Um, in this case, fortunately, before we went into the wave, we had just stopped. I just had to uh, do a repair on the door real quick. And so, if we'd have been running 30 knots and gone into this wave, it would have been, I don't know if I'd be here right now. So, as this boat went off the wave, I was standing on the hel- up on the bridge next to Cap Merrick at the helm, and it was steep enough that I free fell forward. So this was a 56 foot boat. And a lot of people kind of understand how sport fish have the helm more. It's aft of center is where the helm is. Um, it just, it's that that way by design so that when we're fighting fish, we can kind of see what's going on in the fighting chair and in the cockpit as we have to maneuver the boat in reverse. Everything in my profile was in it. And when she hit the bottom, I just heard this terrible. (laughs) And basically it was the, the bulkheads breaking and, um, and just the pressure, basically, pretty much, she broke. I think she broke her spine and then the pressure on the side, so her bow deck popped. So if you think about a bow deck, a bow deck is a major structural component. So you want to prove it? Grab a, uh, like a Tupperware container, a Rubbermaid container. With the lid off, squeeze on the sides and it squeezes in. You put the lid on, you squeeze on the sides. It's kind of, you know, if you've ever tried it, it's kind of hard to squeeze in the sides, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So when she hit And uh, um, as I was free falling forward and was able to grab a hold of the tower, the tuna tower leg and a rail at the the front of the helm or the front of the bridge, I was able to see a crack running from the, from the starboard side, running to the port side where the bow deck met the house about a foot forward of that position. And, um, and just from that moment knew that this wasn't going to be good, but even though I saw what I saw and heard what I heard, I was still kind of expecting to feel that, you know, to feel that ride up, but it didn't, she just stuck. And um and go down and she was gone pretty quick and um Eric and I were in the water and this this is the, there were so many different miracles that happened throughout this this event and I'll never forget you know we had never really talked much about our faith or any of that and Cat uh, Eric and I each grabbed this little this little igloo bait cool and we grabbed each other and we immediately went into the Lord's prayer and I think it's because we knew. That there was no way we were getting out of this. I mean, we were by ourselves, 90 miles out in the, you know, in the lower Gulf, where there's not much traffic. Nobody else was around, and uh, and from there, that's where the the fight for survival kind of began.
1: So it was just the two of you.
0: Just the two of us, yes, sir. So here's a, another ironic thing. So the boat that won the Big Rock tournament last year, the Mercenaria the captain of that boat his name is uh is neil he's a good friend of mine and his dad's a friend of mine as well so before i had left virginia beach that year to head down to palm beach i'd had it because his dad was a captain up here too and uh his dad said hey look i would like for neil to experience the cross i guess neil's probably like 12 years old 11 years old something like that at that point in time but he wanted to experience what it's like to make that crossing from key west to cancun and then they were going to fly back so this happened in 1998, like I said. So in 1997, it was the strongest El Nino in recorded history. And, you know, from being on that California side, I, know, I mean, you're probably a lot more aware of the La Nina, El Nino effects than, uh, than we are here. But it definitely does affect the weather across the nation. So because of that El Nino, there was, there was lots of crazy weather events that were going on throughout. I mean, I fished some rough days that winter in Palm Beach. And so actually, before we had left to go, we were kind of like, so I charter fished at Sailfish Marina, and then that season would kind of start to wind down closer to, like, to March. So then I would kind of, like, jump over to a private boat, um, typically for the for the spring, and to, you know, to the summer, before I had to come back up here. And so the family I went to work for, the great, I mean, wonderful people out of Texas. So we were kind of like, so I was new to the Inigo, so I had, had we had to have like a kind of like a prove out if you would i mean we're here you know you're talking about cat merrick myself the owner his wife his daughter and his son in and out on a 56 foot boat for almost three months i mean can you imagine like i mean that's tight mm-hmm. i mean i have a hard enough time my house is bigger than that and i have a hard enough time living with my family seeing you know seeing them part of the time but um and i think we all kind of feel that we need our space sometimes and in that case there's not a whole lot of space, so you have to get along so that was the reason for that prove out trip. But um it was on that prove out trip that I called Milton and told him, Look, I don't think it'd be a good idea if you all come down here. I mean, maybe maybe next year because I'm afraid that you're just gonna get stuck in Key West because we don't we didn't know when we were gonna have a weather window because of the those El Nino storms that were popping up. So um, I think that may have had something to do with what happened out there. I, I don't know where the wave came from. I don't know whether it was seismic. I'm not, you know, I'm not an oceanographer, so I'm not going to pretend to know. I just know that I've never seen anything like it. And, um, and then that, so that's one of the things in the book that we I get into a little bit is related to the research of rogue waves because many of us I think have heard of them, and we we, we I think we're hearing a little bit more about them now. But in that time frame. They didn't even have a documented rogue wave. I mean, prior to that, to you know, this era, which there was an event that happened in uh, 1995 that changed everything. When there was uh, up in, in the North Sea, there was an oil rig that was struck by a rogue wave. That was, you know, that was the first time a rogue wave r- rogue wave was ever recorded. That's amazing. It is. Am- I mean, we've talked about, it. we've heard about it, and we know that they the ships will stretch out on and break in half because prior right. to that, they'd always kind of put it on. You know, it was something. Well, there was something wrong with the vessel, you know, structurally, or it was, you know, the captain's error. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that was that was kind of that was healing for me discovering that research because it just shows that there's still a big questions about these monsters that are out there roving the oceans.
1: Yeah, right. So why don't you walk us back, Johnny, and, and tell us so so, you know, this obviously this this rogue wave just destroyed your vessel, you know, and so now it's you and Captain Eric, and, and you're in the water, and, and what's going on from here?
0: So we're in the water, uh, and so in this, uh, and we said the prayer, uh, and then when, you know what? When we finished the prayer, then Inca popped back up, but she was up, she was she was upside down, and you know, in the in the book, it kind of gets into that. Whole, it's like a whole chapter just on that that couple minute process of the boat going down. But she popped back up with, but it was just like the air that was in her lazarette underneath the cockpit. Um, so it was just like. A small part of her bottom, a small piece of her stern with their wheels and rudders. So Eric went to the the hull because that's textbook. You know, we can live out there a long time, but we got to be out of the water. Our bodies are not made to stay in that water. And at the same time, I looked over and that's when I saw uh, that my surfboard was floating. And it was in a board bag. So, I don't know. Have you ever tried, have you ever tried paddling a board bag before?
1: No, I haven't tried that.
0: Neither did I. That was, dude, dude. that was, that was a weird feeling. And so, and it was one of those old SCS board bags and it had kind of like a Mylar finish. Mm-hmm. So when I looked at it, and I saw the surfboard floating, and that says a lot right there too, because the surfboard was up in the bow and the, like my stateroom was up in the V-berth. So, and it, that's shows how much she separated for that thing to come right out. Wow. And I'll never forget this. So I saw it floating, you know, and I told Eric, I said, you know, Eric, I think I need to get that. He's like, right, go get it, buddy and so i took off for the surfboard and that's when i hit the diesel fuel shane i'll tell you what that's when i found i knew where every single cut was on my body because i knew i'd never swim through these gone swimming in diesel fuel before but it was like it was in my eyes you know could you imagine it getting in your nostrils it was in my mouth and just in ears, just everywhere Mm -hmm. and and you know what my first thought was was that please lord don't let me throw up i can't afford to lose this food that's in my stomach from breakfast this morning mm-hmm. i'm going to need it to survive mm-hmm. so so one of the questions people like to ask me about is mindset and we can get and we can talk a little bit about mindset you know just you know, however you want as we go through this but mindset is huge and um that was my mindset my mindset and it was so we got a job we have to do and our job is to stay alive mm-hmm. And whatever it takes so that's what really kind of just shocked me is like wow i never thought about this before but Mm -hmm. that just that thought came in it was like look you can't throw up you got to do everything you can do not to throw up even though you want to Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and um so from there actually had made it to the surfboard and um that's when uh it was i mean thankful to have it but there was there was a condition with the surfboard that was going to be one of those factors that would play out throughout um the time in the water and just um be a big mental um challenge to get over and um yeah it was funny i yeah, just hopping on that surfboard trying to paddle because you got to think you know because the you don't you know how, how the fins control so much of, of how the the motion of the board is well the fins are in the bag hmm. so <laughs> so it's, it's like you
1: know?
0: yeah that's right it's just yeah. you know that, that you're trying to paddle and the tail's like kicking around Mm-hmm, so it, mm-hmm. it took a little while to get used to that
1: so you're you're going to get the board right you're paddling through diesel and all that what's going on with with captain eric
0: so eric had climbed onto onto the hull and um so by the time i was I got the board and was heading back to him she had already gone back down She was done and that was the last time we'd see the ininga and um you know she was going off to the depths and he was able to get you know his a hold of like a Uh, Engine hatch from that would have been under the salon floor. Now, this engine hatch was was not very big. It was probably made with maybe three eighths inch plywood top and like a like a two by two or one and a half by one um, like like frame around the bottom of it. Man, I'll tell you what, that thing was a nightmare to hang on to because there was no way to be comfortable holding on to it because you'd hold on to it and it would be, you know, digging into your side or whatever. But he was holding on to that, and then he was able to get his hands on a, um, one of the bridge cushions. Mm-hmm. So the bridge cushions, uh, the foam wasn't that great with them. I think they were probably due for replacement. So uh, then really didn't have the, the nice closed cell foams that we have now. So it was like the really squishy foam. And so, so it was, it was, a, it was somewhat buoyant, but it was also very absorbent as well.
1: Yeah. So, so Eric was diving to get these things while you were getting
0: this. He, um, they just, they popped up right next to him um, when the vessel went down.
1: Okay.
0: So again, you know, he was able to get that that quick. That shows you, I think, how. Uh, is another good example of how busted up she was. Wow. And again, okay. nothing against Jim Smith. It's just that was just I can't. The the force of that wave was horrifying. Mm -hmm. um and so that's something else that with the with the doing the research so um did a lot watched a lot of documentaries and there was something that was i noticed in that was that these the people that were interviewed that had experienced one of these rogue waves i mean i'm talking about some salty some salty captains, Mm -hmm. Uh, the ones that were actually there to witness it not not down below sleeping but the ones that were the people that witnessed one of these things they are shook Mm -hmm. and you could see how difficult it is for them to hold their composure um, and not go into tears just talking about it. Just because, I mean, it's that's a big ocean out there, and it's way bigger than we are.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, so just running it back here. So Eric found found some cushions to full on. You got the surfboard. What what goes on from there?
0: So from there, it was uh, it was initially it was like it was kind of like, is this real? Um, it's obvious it was real, but it was like just—I remember the feeling of just like I can't believe this. This is how is this happening? How did? And it's just like how did that just happen? It's like what was that thing? Um, those were some of our our initial um, responses while we were while we were in the water. It's like. And analyzing it and there was nothing that anybody did wrong i mean it was it, was, it wasn't it was like there was a wall of water that we saw it was just like you run along and all of a sudden there's a cliff that you don't see yeah. um there's lack of a better way to put it and um no fault there's no fault didn't it so then it was it was just we knew that all right we got we've got to survive and so we did try to collect things one of the things that we would do is um uh, we would spend time so eric still had his glasses on, and so when we went down, you know, Eric had, like, his, his ball cap on and shorts and T-shirt. That boat had just, like, a curtain that was in front of the console. So some that boat was built in, like, the mid-'80s. And some of those mid '80 boats, so they were trying to squeeze as much speed out of them as they could because we didn't have the, the high-horsepower engines that we have now. So anything to reduce drag. So it didn't have, like, a full enclosure around the flybridge. It just had the curtain in front of the console, similar to what a lot of center consoles would have. And um, so I was – before you know, earlier that morning before it went down, I was in the front. and I just had my my on, my you know my slickers on, just in shorts and t-shirt underneath, just to you know break the wind. And it was that was a crazy thing too. So you know having that stuff on in the water and just kicking it off. Um, I mean it was it was kind of funny. I remember laughing about this. So I remember the moment of like thinking, man, it's hard for me to swim my shoes on, and and I just bought a brand new pair of Sperrys, and I kicked them off, and it was funny because it just the buoyancy made them pop up and kind of leap out of the water a little bit and when they floated beside me and then floated away. And then, and then, of course, you know, kicking out, out of my slick, getting out of my slickers and letting them float off. And so, again, so then I was in shorts and t shirt, but again, Eric had those glasses on. So he gave me the glasses and I would kind of like uh, lay, I was kind of laying in the water and just kind of, he and we were, we, we would switch, you know, who would hold the surfboard or who would hold the um, the engine hatch cover with the other because it was so uncomfortable. And Eric would mainly scan the horizon, and I would mainly try to look up into the sky looking for uh, airplanes or, or something that might see us. One thing we tried not to do is look down.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so, you know, it's, it's pretty deep there. So it's like a, close to the thousand fathoms or whatever right there we went down. And, you know, it's the abyss and trying not to think about what was underneath of us. So there was one time I'll tell you that Samahi did come swimming up and swimming around us a little bit. That was that was it was so cool to to like, cause it kind of like a glimpse out of the peripheral, this little flash under the water, and to see them, and then it was like, oh great, what's going to be behind them?
1: Right. So you have the the surfboard. You said you have a hitch, but they're hatched. But what, what, who is anyone floating above the water at any point? Or are you both just? No, the water? we're we're
0: in the water. So that's the, but there was a condition to that surfboard that did that was affecting its buoyancy. So there was really no way to get our bodies fully out of the water.
1: Oh, okay. And you didn't find that out until you had until you had grabbed it.
0: Yeah, So yeah. So then, it, like, I knew something was weird, and then later on, I kind of tried to do like a more detailed in, an inspection of it to find out what was going on. And then when I found out what was going on, I was like, oh no, that was just a thing, something that was like, all right, here's another, here's another limit to the to the time that we're going to make it out of here. And um, and while we were in the water, so. There was a call that day that we found out later on, right on around nine o'clock that went from Cancun to Key West. Um, that was don't send any boats. It's getting bad. So we went down, you know, it was two to three foot seas, you know, beautiful, you know, just, just perfect, you know, you know, small groundswell. And, um, then wasn't like it was like, like they didn't have any backsides to them or anything like that. Maybe, maybe 12 knots of wind. So it was beautiful, but, that storm would come on us while we were in the water, and that was um, that that got bad, really bad.
1: Was there signs leading up to it? I mean, did, did the sky yes, darken? Yes. Did you, okay.
0: Yeah, so it was the classic. You know, when you're out there and you're looking, you can kind of you can kind of see what's going on in the sky, and you kind of feel the wind start to blow, and you know that it's going to be getting right. And um I didn't expect it to be as right as it got, but you know, it's yeah. You know, it's just when you just there's that certain ripple that the ocean gets on it. You know that oh great, this not it's only going to be a matter of time. So um, you know, several hours into it, you know we had you know the the boat had formed debris lines. Um, you know, just with the current edges, I guess. And often, you know, if, if, if you aren't aware of what I'm talking about, uh, maybe you may have recognized it when you go to the beach and you, you look out over the ocean, you'll see like a line of bubbles or something like that. So sometimes when people look at the ocean, they look at it like it's one body of water. Well, it's really not. It's made up of a bunch of different bodies of water. If, uh, you can even look at satellite imagery of the temperatures, and you can see how blended it is and made up of these all these different bodies that are sometimes are pushing different ways. Mm. So the Aninga had formed one line of debris that went down sea, and then there was a branch that kind of went off diagonally from that off to the to the left side of that main line, um, kind of like across the cutting across the the swell direction. And that was a conversation that we had. Eventually, was related to that. It was like, hey, look, you know, we knew we were going to have to find the have to find the ePerb, which is the emergency positioning radio device. Which basically, you know, you activate that, and that at that point in time, and that's something else that I kind of learned a little bit more about. Because I think we have we had a, we have a maybe it that. During those time frame, we had more confidence in it than we really needed. So when I was writing, I was talking to a friend of mine that's, um has Marlin Marine Electronics up here, and I was kind of getting some more insight about the e of that day. He goes, yeah, John, that was just a radio signal. And the only way that if a plane was flying over and was listening for the signal, then they would have picked it up. Hmm. I'm like, that's are wow. you serious? He goes, yeah. I'm like, wow, never knew that one.
1: Yeah, that's extremely. <laughs> wow. so, Versus so- today,
0: you know. They're all they're four oh sixes, so it's all uh, satellite driven. So if they go off, the, you know, if it went off right here, they'd be like, John, uh, what are you doing at your house? Uh, Sitting at your dining room table, pretty much.
1: Right, that's a huge difference. So, so how long you're in the water for a few hours before you think we need to get that?
0: Well, we kind of been looking around, but mm-hmm. then, but it was just the the okay, we got You know, time to Perfect. Perfect. to go out searching. So it's one thing when you're together looking mm-hmm. for things, but it's another thing to leave because. You know, we're mining nine miles out. There is no points of reference. You know, the clouds are kind of covering the sun, so we don't always have that as a point of reference. And so, and that was it was it was mostly cloudy. Then I'd say because there be we were we because we were also pretty sunburnt. Um, you know, from being in the water as well from times when the when the sun was out. But yes, yeah, so it was. Got to go look for it. At that point in time, I felt comfortable though with the uh, that line of debris going. Down sea, because I knew I could always follow that to get back to Eric. So that's what it was, and uh, so went out looking for the E perb the first time. You know, I wish I would have got a better description of the ditch bag uh, than I did, uh, um, for, that would have contained some of the other stuff. So the E and the life raft were just inside the salon. So here I am. I am a guy that has graduated from college with a degree in safety. And I'm on a boat getting ready to make a trip. And the conversation that morning before we left Key West was kind of like this. Should we take the E-Purban life raft out and put it in the cockpit? Now, if we do that, that means we'll have to clean it when we get there. Nothing ever happens during the daytime. And what had happened was is when, you know, when she busted apart, those salon doors were double doors on the center line. Because the boat buckled, buckled, it wedged the doors together so the doors couldn't open. So we couldn't get it out. And so that's what going forward, you know, going out on that line and looking for that stuff. And so I got to that intersection where that diagonal line went off. And it was like, I remember the fear that I had when I went down that diagonal line and started down that to make that left turn. It was like, I may have, um, what happens if this separates? Because there's plenty of times we're out there fishing, you know, we'll fish and we'll fish up and down a grass line like crazy and just, you know, get a catch of dolphins or whatever. And. You know, you'll fish down the line, then you'll fish back, and then you'll be like, well, what happened to the rest of it? Because it broke off. But anyway, I had to face that fear and go down that line looking for the eperb.
1: So it was a fear that the line would disappear and you wouldn't be able to get back?
0: Yeah, or something would happen to that effect that I wouldn't, that would be, I would get lost from Eric and not have that directly, you know, up and down sea um, pointer perspective.
1: How far did you swim out, do you think?
0: Oh, man. So it wasn't as far as I ended up swimming out later on. I'm going to say that was probably that time, you know, again, it's, it's hard to reference. So, you well, know, you know how it is. You can paddle long, you, on a surfboard. You can paddle a long way. I had probably paddled out at that point, probably to the end of that about a half hour to the end of that. Wow. So think about it. That's, you can.
1: So you couldn't see water. Eric for even as a No, speaker, no,
0: no, no. I couldn't see him at all. He was, yeah, he was, couldn't yeah. see, see him a bit. And especially. You know, and that's another thing too. So, you know, the seas were start had to to build a little bit. But, you know, when we're out there and we're on a boat and we look over and we see an object, you know, we can, it's easier for us. But when you're at head level, even in a two or three foot sea, you'll see something. It's going to be a while before you see it again, just because of that line of sight perspective. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I went down that line, got to the end of that line and um, kind of cut over to the, and came back up and cut over to the other line a little bit as I got closer to it. Went down the down sea line. Yeah, Nothing. And uh, had made my way back to Eric, and lo and behold, you know, I get back to Eric. And guess what? He's he's got life jackets. So you know, so that's that just blows my mind because one of the things that I had noticed on the debris line, and how things would come up throughout the day, was how things of similar buoyancy and similar location, where they were stored in the vessel, how they came up together. Hmm. Well, the life jackets were on the bridge. How in the world is it that 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 happened? Right. And um, so I was, it was like it was there were miracles. There's there's no other way to describe. It. I mean, for that to you... so there's a gentleman that's in Florida that read the book, and um, and he had, you know he had, there's things about life that he questions and and I got a, a, a text related to to him and his discussion. He's like, man that. That sure is a lot of miracles happen. How much of it can he kind of put off to to sheer coincidence? And that's the thing. So there was so it's it's beyond that. That's all I can say. And it was we would have um, ups and downs. So not only did the life jackets end up floating up to right right where Eric where it was, but also the flare the we had two of the you know the Orion the they were look more like a barrel the twist lock flare kits are orange. Mm-hmm. They floated up to where Eric was too. It's kind of funny. I'm out looking for all this stuff and, you know, the safety gear is popping up right there next to to my captain. And uh, I'll never forget, you know, we went back to to laying in the water, kind of watching. And um, I remember seeing an airplane and the hope that was in that airplane. And we tried signaling. Of course, we used some smoke flares on the airplane now. I think Eric had probably packed as many flares in those things as he could. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it wasn't definitely it wasn't the bare minimum for sure. And watching that plane go out of sight was pretty crushing. Um, Put the flare kit back together, and you know the way as the waves were starting to increase and starting to cap a little bit, um, a white cap hit hit us and hit the flare kit. One of them and busted it open, and we lost the um, was it the that was it the twenty five millimeter gun or the twenty one twenty five. But anyway, we lost that bigger flare gun and the flares that were in that kit.
1: How many hours were you at that point?
0: That was crushing. So that was probably, let me guess, um, probably four hours into it, but maybe, something like that, three, four hours into it.
1: Wow. Just want to take a quick moment amid our podcast to share a message about our sponsor, IMTRA, a 100% employee-owned company committed to bringing best-in-class products, expert product knowledge, and unparalleled support to the entire marine industry throughout North America since 1952. Go ahead and visit intra.com for more information.
0: And then more time, more time went by. Seas were building, and uh, there was a cruise ship that went past us. You that was that was hard to write about because, and um, I don't want to spoil it for those that want to read the book, but um, that was so crushing to talk to write it and so hard to put that in words. So initially, I'd thought about doing this book um, and having like a, a ghost writer or, or co-author write it. And then it was – actually, it was those circumstances such as that that n- – how can anybody else put that in words? How, how can anybody else put what it's like to see a rogue wave in words? Mm-hmm. Um, there's just the crushing blow of that cruise ship going over the horizon was part of the mental um, game that was working on me out there um hope, how close
1: did, how close do they get to you guys
0: so that's the thing so you know fishing if any of y'all have ever uh, come out of the, the chesapeake bay that are listening to this and uh, you know where the the chesapeake light tower is which is 13 miles off the beach here we kind of uh, i don't know it's i guess it's by habit we kind of that's our point of reference to anything as far as distance so i'd always kind of guess that the cruise ship was maybe 11 miles wow so, you know, and I didn't, I'd never, you know, I was going through my captain's course and all that stuff. I never really sat down and had really tried to think about what I saw and do the calculations with how far it was. And when I did that um, for the book, it was, uh, man, i tell you what, I just was, I was crushed to know that that I, it was only like six miles away from us at the most, based on line of sight. to the rise and, to At this
1: point, see. your flare gun was gone.
0: Right. yeah we had so we still have the other flare kit mm-hmm. We burnt through a lot of flares mm-hmm. on that one um, but we still had a couple left we had so after the cruise ship had gone by we had had um so on the the 12 gauge you know they got that little card that's kind of like on the back of the handle that the that the the bullets kind of slide into mm-hmm. We had two left on there and then we had a I think a, a couple stick flares left.
1: So you know, I, I'm I'm sure that anybody who wants to read the book, there's, there's going to be so much more to it. But I, I just got to ask you, Johnny. So I mean, what was that like? What was going through your head when you saw the the cruise ship? I mean, what were you, how many flares did you guys use? Were you were you screaming? Had you know what were you doing to try to get their attention?
0: We were we just it was it was far enough that not screaming, but just you know the flares and holding them up and 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 you know trying to coordinate what our orange smoke versus our our red flares. Mm -hmm. Um, and just thinking about the angle of the ship from the bridge and then, you know, okay, well, the bridge is, you know, maybe somebody's out on the wing or then it's like the side of the ship was towards us. And it's like all these eyes, there's got to be thousands of eyeballs on that ship. Somebody's got to see us. Yeah. And then from there, then to the stern and then seeing more of that stern quarter. It was like, you know what? People are always looking out, the, you know, off the stern. We're looking at the wash. Maybe somebody's going to be there. And um, I'm going to say that that was the the biggest blow that started leading my thoughts to a really negative place of you are going to die out here. Um, so then we never, we never expressed those thoughts to each other, mm-hmm. um, even though they were, they were prevalent thoughts. Mm-hmm. So going to, and jumping ahead to, um to when it was probably a good, you know, good solid, you know, six foot, you know, seven foot in the, Debris line was starting to break up, and uh, this was uh, – I still have a hard time talking about this part of it, but Eric and I finally had the hard conversation, and it was this. If we don't find that Eperb, we're going to die out here. And I knew what that meant because Eric wasn't – so by this point in time, Eric had lost a lot of his feeling in his lower extremities and um he wasn't capable of of going out searching so let me go back real quick to that time in the bahamas and in that time in the bahamas so like you like you like do you like to surf and if you like this and if, do you like to do you dive at all or do free diving or anything
1: um a little bit yeah a little bit of diving
0: yeah so like typically guys that like to surf and like to free dive we don't go swimming mm-hmm. to, um, unless there's a purpose to go swimming you know exactly exactly <laughs> So that was me. So we were at, at Chubb Key in the Bahamas. It was like, so there's an island off Chub Key called Mama Rota Rock. It's just a rock that's out there. But every evening when we would get in and I'd get the boat clean, I'd go over to the beach and it was like something was in my internal soul that was telling me, go swim to that rock. Hmm. So every day I would go, I would get in that, wall, I'd clean the boat, I'd go over there and I'd swim and swim. And each day I'd swim further and swim further and swim further. What that was, was that was my body getting conditioned for what was going to happen the week later. Hmm. And I like to say that because of this. God is never going to send us into anything, any battle that he hasn't prepared us for. And Chubb Key, he was preparing me for this day in the water. Hmm. Um, and I think that's, that is just so tremendously powerful. Um, and the way that we can use that in our life, whether is it is it cancer, is it the loss of a job? Is it the loss of a loved one? Is it divorce? What is it? I don't know, but we all have it. If we look and we dig deep, we've been prepared for it, and we just have to have faith and just trust that He's going to get us through it. Hmm. So at that moment, when um when I had to go out, and look, knowing this, knowing okay, if I found the if I found the life raft, what good was that going to do? It would only do me good. There's mm-hmm. no way I'd be able to get that back to Eric in those sea conditions. No way. And that's the thought I didn't like to think about, but this was this was the hard one, you know, because basically, you know, I was given, in his gentle way of doing so, I was given an order, a command, and you know, and the way it is on a boat, you know, captain gives you an order, you do it. There's no that's, there's no question. There's you you follow it, mm-hmm. and in his gentle way of doing it, that of saying that you know we have got to find the deep urban life raft. That right. was the order. So I said, okay, cap. And I explained to him, look, I don't feel like I did a good job of covering that diagonal line. Now, again, though, I was already feeling like a failure. Failed with, you know, the whole thing with the life raft and the, you know, EPIRB inside of the salon. Failed with, you know, all these other, you know, different things that when I'd gone out before looking. Failed with the airplane. Failed with the cruise ship. I was a failure. And yeah, and now you're relying on me, a failure, to go out and save us. Yeah. And, um, but uh, this thought, this last thing I said to him before I left was, um, cap, you know, when I find that eperb and I activate it, we aren't going to stop looking until we find you because, and, he, and I know he knew that, that, that they would come to me. That felt, that was a weight, um, feeling like I, like I would be abandoned my cap was pretty tough. And, uh, so anyway, so, you know, I kind of took off and it's probably going to blow a good, good solid 20 now. And, you know, put in, per, to put it in perspective, it's 20. We don't even, even think about leaving the dock, especially anything. So the wind had earlier in the day, we had kind of, had, was more of a, kind of a easterly, Northeasterly direction. We had a Northeast ground swell, And then by this point in time, the wind had was coming around and it was more of a Southeasterly type wind. So if you can imagine it's a, it's uh, it's a bracket wind so basically the wind is going across the swell direction so what's going on there is we're losing um we're losing that that background swell if, if that makes sense it's getting more like a wash machine basically so i got to that point again where i could recognize the split in the line and knew that i needed to cover that other line more diligently and, and, I, and i'd hope that maybe in that time frame since i'd left that it, it popped up and um I got to the end of that line and I didn't find it. And by this point in time, you know, things were the, because of the wind and the waves and the white caps and everything else. She was really busting up bad. So I was like, there's no way I'm lost. And I had gone out further this time than I did the, the original time. Yeah. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to find Eric. And that's when I started to allow the thoughts to really dig in the thoughts of your failure. You're going to die out here. You're going to die out here, and Eric's going to die out here because you failed. You're getting cold, and that was one of the things. So I was distinct, and that's something that I distinctly remember being in the water. And you know, we talked a little bit about my background um, and my education, being you know, and safety. And uh, this was a this was a clear thought. It was like, man, you're getting cold. Your core is dropping, and you can't control it. That was like, whoa, because that's that kind of made sense. Um, but there would be more, more to come later on in life once I started speaking that would answer a, bit, a bigger part of that question. But uh, so, yeah, so that's playing in.
1: What time and, is it now uh, as you're out there? Is it is it night set in or? No, no, no. So no. this
0: is this is this is afternoon now. Okay. Um, so what we like probably what? Three o'clock, something like that. Um, or maybe or maybe it'll probably actually later than that. Uh, maybe it's like around four o'clock.
1: And, Are you about we know? How long has it been?
0: Yeah, so all right, so that's funny. I, lo- I love, that you asked, I just asked that question about the time. So, you know, our I had like all my prize possessions on that boat. Like, you know, the biggest, the, and they were everything was like gone in an instant because you know it was gonna be out of the country for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing I think I really regretted losing was my. So my old Dominion University class ring was 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 in my it was in my bag mm-hmm. and i lost that. It, it had nothing to do with the ring. It just had to do with the fact that you know I worked hard to get it. Yeah, um, you understand that. And but I had some my watch. So I had this watch that I had. It had like a Velcro band. It was a citizen's watch. But the cool thing about this watch was the face of it. And so that was the watch I'd had for years. But you could look at that watch and think, man, I wish I had a lure that looked like that. Because it had like bill scratches across the face of it in every different direction. Every different, like you could see like, oh, well, that's a white marlin. And then like these bigger scratches that are deeper and wider. Oh, look at that blue marlin. It whacked your wrist there. Um, but as I was swimming, um, so I was kind of treading water in my, in my I, and something hit my hand. I'm like, whoa. But I grabbed it. And it was, my watch had come <laughs> off my wrist. And then when my when it hit my palm as it was sinking, I grabbed hold of it, so that I kind of tucked it up in. So yes, I really wasn't focused on um, as far as the exact time of everything. So it's just kind of estimates. So anyway, yeah, just there, and I'm trying to go through what I think is the trough to pick up that that line that went down sea, and that's when it I realized that you know I'm I'm lost. I gave up. So I don't want to get. … into all of the details of this part of it. Um, and this is the part we talked about yesterday that said it was kind of hard, um, but I do want to get the, to, to the general part of it, which is so basically I allow my mindset to carry me down the road where I rationalize killing myself. I made sense of ending my life. That's crazy, and I, but the thing is is now that I realize how it happened, I just – that's my message to other people, so this story um again you know I'm just the messenger of this story but I know of four suicides that have been in process that were stopped because of it that this story hit that person I mean it fell in their life at just the right time when they were in the in the in the act of ending it that they stopped
1: how did you find That's out it.
0: about that um so one of the there's a story in the book about it um related to <laughs> An employee that, you know, obviously if you something happens, you get hurt, you're going to end up in in my office. And uh, so we're in there talking, and um, and it was weird because this is something I don't typically do. And so my wife, you know, she's got my office decorated with all kinds of cool stuff, like, you know, cool pictures of sunrise that she's taken through the rigors while we're out fishing and, and all this other stuff. So um, and so this guy, he's a young African-American guy. I mean, tough. I, mean, I was kind of scared of the kid, you know, because he'd been in and out of prison. He just had a very tough life. And um, something led me to share the story with him. I'm sharing the story with him. Shane, next thing I know, I look over, and this kid that is tough as nails is bawling in my office. And I'm like, what just happened? And then he looks at me and goes, Mr. John, I tried to kill myself yesterday. I took all the pain meds, but it didn't work. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um and from that point, and then, but he, had, he was, and he was still planning on carrying it through. Um, this story had changed his perspective, and you know it was such a blessing. Is um so you know, and he he continued to work for us for quite a while, and then he ended up uh, getting a, a, another opportunity. But it was probably six months after that he took the time to come back to the office to come see me, and he came and sat in my office, and he was like, "Thank you so much for helping save my life." man i was then uh, that's when i was in tears like he was um wow. you know cause it's uh it's pretty powerful yeah. um that's one example of it um you know some of the other examples i don't really want to i can say one of it was related to actually to the delivery of the book mm-hmm. um so this book was done through uh, a program is called creators institute um, so basically, that part of it is uh, prof- there's a professor named Eric Coaster. He was at Georgetown and he developed this program. And then um, the publisher is New Degree Press. And um, so the way it, it's a hybrid publish. So I would, you know, basically there's enough people that believe in this book that they, they bought, it was like a pre sale campaign for it. And so one of the people that bought the book in the pre sale campaign, it was like, you know, just try, I wanted to hand deliver all the books because it, because it's, Hey, they believed in me enough to pay twice as much as they should for this book that I you know, I think I need to visit you in person if I can. And so I got caught up at one person's house and was late getting to somebody else's house, and I dropped that book off on their front porch, and um, recently their mother had passed away, and um, that's what they were kind of like living for was for their mom at the time, and um, they had made a decision that they were going to just go ahead and end it, to, and that morning they, they <laughs> walked out on the porch saw the book picked it up <laughs> started reading it that morning and ne- never put it down and then uh they let my wife know that what had happened wow pretty humbling
1: yeah
0: um but you know that's we all we all have stories that can help others and if we don't share them it doesn't do a whole lot of good but yeah so back to um to my event um yeah can, can i ask I, you,
1: johnny yeah, can i ask you yes. um I, okay terrible it's a hard question to ask I'm sure this is something that you talk no, about go much ahead much more detail you'll share with me but uh, how were you even thinking to do that like how, how would you have how would you have ended things
0: so all right so here's how it came about is I knew there was I had there was two options two, one was I was gonna drown the other was I was gonna get ripped apart by sharks more specifically thinking about that you know because we were in the gulf stream if we got shot to the florida straits or if we got on the banks of bahamas we knew that the bull sharks were going to rip us to pieces we knew that we pretty we were pretty sure that you know the, that you know the sharks are probably there around us anyway mm-hmm. um that's that, that's what really led me down that road to to make the decision that i rationalize it i would rather drown than get eaten alive by sharks i figured that drowning would be less painful and as somebody who's doing a lot of free diving at the time, you know, I knew my limits, and I knew that if I and so this was you, you know at you asking about the I had planned, I mean in detail, and I kind of write a little bit about that. And me saying the stuff about writing, I'm not trying to say this to I'll tell you every single thing there is, but we just don't have time for it. Yeah, um, sure. it's my goal is to help people, not to not I mean selling books is great, but my goal is to help people. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's one of the things that's in it is it's it, I take people through I take the reader through the mental process of that plan and, and how I'm gonna end it down to knowing how deep I needed to go, the exhale and shoving myself down even further, knowing that I was at my limits and I I mean I would have already exhaled, but make sure that you know, I did the full exhale. And then if I like shoved down like four times hard, I knew that I wouldn't make it back to the surface. Um and I just kind of figured, you know, it was it would be that that gulp maybe and that convulsion and And then that would be it. So um, before I did it, you know, I. I thought about my family. Um, It was hard. That was one of the hardest things to think about in the water was just. The people I like to say goodbye to. So think about that every day, you know, I want your listeners to think about that and the, the people that read your article. There's so many things in this world that we let upset us and get us mad with each other. We don't know what the future holds. Hey, I was just going to work this day. I mean, this was just another trip is all it was. I never expected this to think this was going to be the last day of my life. And um, life's too short and too good for us to to live like that with anger and animosity and just everything that we have now that we see in this society that's creating so much division. That stuff doesn't matter. When you're fighting for your life, that stuff doesn't matter, and you will you will feel bad for the people that you can't say I'm sorry to. Um, I thought about my parents, and I just wish that, um, that they would have known that I was at peace, I was in a place I love to be, and it's okay. So then it came to the actual process. And um, you know there's a point where uh where with hypothermia that our body says you're done, and the the vessels so our hands and toes typically get cold, you know first well, and I know if anybody listens to this does hunting, you know you you definitely know there have been snowboarding or skiing you know that when you get cold, your fingers and toes are where you feel at first because our vessels are constricting because mm-hmm. it's trying to keep that blood at our core. And there's a time there's there is there is a point in time with hypothermia that your body says all right you're done so those vessels dilate and there's a kind of like a warm rush that you feel. I was nowhere near that point. I mean because the I had this I still had amazing dexterity and and so forth. So I had made said my prayers like Lord you know I just you know, I just this is there's no this is, this is the only way out of this and. um Please you know, forgive me for what I'm about to do. I don't want to do it, but this is it. And um, it was in that process that's when he showed up and stopped it. And that's why I had a hard time putting that part in the book because I was afraid that somebody else might think that the same thing that happened to me might happen to them. I truly struggle with it. And actually it was to the point where um, actually I didn't even, I put off writing this part of the book. And then finally my, um, Sherman, who was my development letter, he said, John, you got to write it. And um, my wife said the night that I wrote this part that I woke up three times screaming that night. The nightmares that I had while writing this book were, were pretty intense. Because, you know, in order to write it, I had to Mentally, go back and relive it. I wouldn't trade it for a thing. It has been such a blessing to get the stories back from people with how this has touched them. And especially related to that moment where I tried to end my life. And um, like I said, pretty much God showed up. That's whether you think I'm an honest person or not, whether you believe that part of the story um, with what had happened. um.
1: But so how was it that you felt like he stopped you?
0: Uh, so I was in the process or I mean, I was in the process of if, if you don't want to hear just like, like mute this for a second. But uh, I was in the process of rolling under to end it, taking my, I, you know, because we, so we, I had my life jacket on. So my life jacket was already starting to tear. So that was working on me as well Is another one of those things bringing me down. As I was in that process of rolling under, all of a sudden my body filled with strength and warmth and, um. And then, so that stopped me. So, I, you know, in this miserable sea state, I was able to grab hold of that surfboard, which hopefully they're still muted, but um, if they don't want to hear this part, but was taken on water. So it was—it had lost a lot of, buoy- it was losing buoyancy steadily. And I grabbed hold of the life jackets, just scrambled it back because I didn't want to lose it. Because I was like, what in the world just happened? And then, so, you know, I grew up going to church and I really didn't, didn't I was more interested in the number of ceiling tiles or the girl sitting next to me or something like that. But it was in that moment that, over my right shoulder, I'll never forget it. I heard, "John, you spend a lot of time out here. Pick your line and paddle it. If you're on a rough sea, the ocean consumes all sound." And I don't know how I was able to hear that sound, and um, and just just the feeling of warmth and strength and power and just faith that overcame my body. If I could take. Just that mustard seed of that faith in that moment, and I wish I could just give, you know, just plant a little bit of that to everyone. Where I don't care how rich you are, how poor you are, I don't care what your status is. I don't care. We all go through those hard times. If I could just give you that, when you're going through your struggle in life, you will have faith and know that you will get through it. That you are, that He is with you, and He loves you. Everything in front of me from that at that point, from that point to the end of the day. Said you're going to die, but I knew in my heart we were going to make it. That's powerful. Um, and that's the power of of, of this story. Um, and then, you know, we'll get I'll get into the the part of it that kind of defies science that you're like you could have like you could have gone ask anybody on the doc said, yeah, there's no way they should end up where they ended up. But anyway, so that's that's what happened. So hey, this is something kind of funny. So uh, I guess it was a couple months ago I was speaking to a. High school journalism class, and uh, and one of the girls in the class asked me this. She said, How do you know that wasn't Captain Eric's voice that you heard? And you know what, Shane? I wish I w- would have been quick enough to think and say it didn't have an Australian accent because <laughs> Eric, <laughs> but um, yeah, was no even I wasn't even close to Eric in any way. Um,
1: well, you, you were uh, what paddled out an hour past him, or how far? Yeah, away yeah,
0: yeah, 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 probably about an hour out,
1: yeah. I couldn't have been so, here.
0: Uh, no, no, no way. Yeah. But yeah, that was kind of, I wish I was like, it, that would have been a good one. I need to remember this one for the future. But <laughs> um, yeah, so then it was the, then it was the, so here I am in a wash machine looking, thinking, where do I go? So I'll never forget uh, when I first started, um, when I, you know, working on a headboat uh, when I was in, in high school, he's just like, we didn't have quite. We didn't obviously. We didn't have the fancy electronics we have today. And I remember um, Captain Fred Feller telling me. So John, what you do is when you hold this wheel, what you want, I want, I don't want you staring at that compass. Look out in front of you, find a pattern in the ocean, and then every now and then check yourself with your compass to make sure that you're going in the right direction. Meanwhile, I mean, the boat did have autopilot, but I guess he wanted me to. He wanted me to learn a lesson. And uh, he, that man wanted me to learn a lot of lessons. Was very grateful for him. But anyway, um, so that's what I was looking for. I was trying to find a pattern, and I knew that it was beyond my capability. But I was able to find a pattern, and I paddled right back to Merrick. which is, and there's some other stuff that's that's in there too that happened um, related to that whole process, and um, kind of going to – deep. So one of my goals in writing the book was to bring the reader in the water. So when I was younger, you know, we had, we had had a spell here where. Um, in the mid nineties where Bermuda high had set up off the East coast and every storm that came across the country, like would hit that Bermuda high and kind of like shoot up. So here in the mid Atlantic, um, I think we had fished close to 70 days in a row, charter fishing. So, so that's like, you know, four 15 in the morning till you know, seven, eight o'clock at night. So pretty, uh, pretty tired and, um, worn slam out and, uh, just, Nothing was penetrating that. It was praying for the boat to break down. And um sure enough it finally, you know, it finally came to an end when I when I had an accident one night on the way home where I flipped my truck. And um, you know, it's just like I knew that I was I was protected at that time too. Um so, you know, it just I knew I was gonna get back to Eric and I and it did and it was So here's the funny part. So here I am the surfboard story so uh, you know if you like to surf you know a lot of places we take boats and they're in the ocean there's a place to surf so I would always take the surfboard with me wherever I went and um, I had never asked Eric if I could take the surfboard so I just figured that morning when we were going to leave because we let, because the boat was staged in Stewart, Florida um, that what's the worst thing he could tell me to do leave the surfboard in the truck or actually my aunt took me to she'd take the surfboard back home with her but I'm gonna take it in. anyway. Just see what he says. So that morning, I get, you know, before we we're getting ready to leave to start our, our our trip to go stage in Key West and ask Captain America, he's not oh, sure, buddy, but it's staying in your bunk. And um, so anyway, there it was. Stirford was with us, and um, that was the, that the part of the story, like I said earlier, that really kind of stood out to others and was kind of like a vessel. So writing the book, you know, in, in these classes, they're talking about character development. And you know, as as a writer, you know you know a lot more about that than I do. So this was funny. We were in our class about character development, and I'm like thinking, who are my characters? Oh, this Eric and I. So finally, you know, it was all zoom. So I hit that the raise the hand button, and so uh, so I talk a little bit. It's like, look, you know, I'm limited on characters, and well, can the surfboard be a character? And the, the whole class, you uh, like all at one time, came off of mute, and they all said Wilson. So everybody was thinking about that volleyball that Tom Hanks painted up and made his friend and made a made a character out of it. Interesting. Yeah, it was it was it was kind of funny. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, Shane, I never thought it would help so many people.
1: So that's how you saw your surfboard at that time. It was it was something you could you could kind of talk to or. or...
0: I don't know about talking. But I I, it was a, it was a a vessel. I mean, it was like a. It was it was it was a, it was a character for sure. I mean, it was it wasn't like I wasn't like I was like Tom Hanks hanging out in the cave talking to this thing with a bloody handprint on it to make a face. But it was like it was a, it was it had a role. Mm-hmm. It had a part as a you know as an object. But
1: so you, um, so you got back to Eric, but you you, you hadn't found any of the uh, emergency equipment you were looking for.
0: Nope. And so that was a thing. So that, that morning when we uh, when the surfboard was on the boat, also my backpack went on the boat. So when when surfing and down like in in some of those places we're surfing over reefs. So I like to wear, I usually like to wear like a something to protect myself surfing over a reef, in case I hit it. Do you know, as I put, paddled back there and got close enough to him to talk to him again, it was like, it was you know, sorry cap, you know, I mean I felt bad because I, I didn't, I felt bad, but I was felt was full of joy at the same time. Like yeah, you know, I didn't find the eper, but man, I found something way bigger than the perp <laughs> And um, so he was like, he's like, that's all right, buddy, look what I found. And he holds up my backpack. So in this rough, terrible sea state, my backpack floats up to the one that needed it the most. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Eric, have you looked in the backpack? He's like, No, I haven't looked in the back. I'm like, There's wetsuits in the backpack. Imagine that. Wow. Uh, um. So anyway, so I had two, uh, two wetsuits.
1: Like, two wetsuits were in the bag.
0: So what I had, I had like a shorty in there, like it was like a two mil, um, kind of like for those of y'all who uh, maybe like a wrestler's uniform. So it's mm-hmm. not a whole lot to it to cover you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just keeps a little bit of your core warm. Sure. But that also had like a like some P2 tops in there, mm-hmm. which yeah, if you've ever used those P2 tops, those things are awesome because it's like the long sleeve and they're it's kind of like what felt and neoprene woven together. They're super warm. So mm-hmm. Eric put that on because he really needed to protect what he had in the core because you know with the other one you know, you get so much lose so much heat up around your shoulders and up in your upper chest that's exposed. Mm-hmm so i put that on and um and kind of like got down the water and let him get on the surfboard as much as he could i try to let eric you know be on the surfboard as much as possible and try to hold on to the um to the to the hatch and the the, um the cushion also on that way back was able to find the master stateroom mattress which wasn't it was a foam mattress so it wasn't buoyant but uh um there's a lot mentally with that that was helpful Mm. um but yeah, so yeah, so it was, it was that was crazy just to think that that came right up to him. So here's another kind of funny thing is that you know we didn't have ways to put stuff together. So one of the things I remember looking for while we were out there searching um, was like water bottles. And I'm like, where's the water bottles? I mean, there should be some water bottles somewhere. There was rum bottles floating everywhere because we had bought some cases of rum when we were in uh in in the Bahamas that week before, but no, but no water bottles. Well, then I finally, hey, we. We, don't, we didn't have water bottles there because we usually, we drink the RO water that the boat water maker makes. So it's like, you know, when I realized that, that was like, it, I'm wasting my time looking for that. But see, did and, and, at one point in time, you know, found like a couple Pepsis, but didn't have had no way to hold on to this stuff mm-hmm. or Cokes or whatever they were. But anyway, so there was we, we needed something that we could put stuff in. And I'll never forget. I see this grocery bag floating along so we we're going to be out of the country for months i mean we would go to like a butcher and get all like you know prime cuts of meat and so forth that bag i opened the bag up you know what was in that filet mignon wow prime cuts of filet mignon that was probably hundreds of dollars worth of steaks in that one half a cent grocery bag but there was nothing those steaks were going to do for us but that half a cent bag could save our life right um, so I remember like dumping the stakes out. Plus, I was thinking, man, I don't think I want these next to me if the so whole gets in this package. I'm and, sure they, um, they,
1: were, they were covered in seawater at that point, right? This is... Yeah. Well, they were. Um. Yeah. So they,
0: they were they were on the on the uh, styrofoam and wraps. So I, I just worried about. I was kind of worried about the you know the and obviously they would thawed out, so they were kind of bloody in there. So I was like, I don't know if I want these things around me. Yeah. Shark bait. Right. Right. Um. So yeah, that was that was that was a, that was a trip. So we had made a decision where we weren't going to separate anymore and uh in the surfboard bag we had there was leashes i had spare leashes in there so we used the leashes to kind of connect each other so this is when it was it was blowing like 25 eight foot seas and you if you can uh, just kind of imagine what it's like so what what a wave height is measured, measured from the troughs of the crest right and you know how it is when you're surfing like a like an eight foot wave when that when that face is coming at you it looks a lot bigger than eight foot doesn't it, it sure does so you can imagine what it was like for us with just you know just our little heads popped out of the water. It, but then there were times where we get hit with a where a cap would break on us and you know send us tumbling and just underwater. Just I remember coming up just gasping for air. And one of the things that people wouldn't think about probably is the Portuguese man of war. So. What Eric and I would kind of do is we would just kind of lay in the water and we just kind of watch each other and then we'd have to communicate. All right, we got to try to dodge left or dodge right because a man of war would come. Because if we figured if we got wrapped up in one of those things, it would uh those things would take a lot out of us. And then it got to a point where um I looked out and I saw a a flare floating about fifty yards away from us. And I told Eric I said you know I don't know if that's a good flare or not. And uh, it was one of the stick flares. So that's something else too. Striking a flare in the water is totally different than standing on land i could tell you that um so that was a that was something that we had to learn how to figure out how to make that happen pretty quick so anyway so so he said all right buddy go get it so i took off to go get it and um you know that wasn't an easy process because you got to think you know just the time frame of being at peaks and being in troughs and trying to keep an eye on where that was to get to it so i get to it and shane it's good it was from that we lost that original flare kit that busted apart Mm -hmm. you want to talk about some hope we were jacked up because we needed that hope because remember i told you there was two bullets on that 12 gauge card right so we decided to put the flares in the surfboard bag because you know we knew that that would get busted apart because we could zip it closed when i was putting that gun in the in the bag earlier a wave broke kind of like capped on me broke on me and when as i was going in so it hit my arm and when it hit my arm the aft bullet on that card caught the zipper and it flipped it off and i remember just watching that thing hit the water and just kind of sinking down thinking that could I mean that was that could have been our life right there but anyway so i mean i was so i'm all like happy excited you know hey it's good it's good it's good. he can't hear me i can't hear him um because of the wind and so i start making my way back to him and keeping in mind the way wind carries on the water the sound and as I was getting him, I could tell he was screaming, but I couldn't tell what he was screaming. And my initial thought was, he's getting ripped apart by sharks. Yeah. So I just started digging to him as hard as I could swim, as fast and as hard as I could swim. I I was trying to get to him because you know he he at that time he had the surfboard, yeah. and I was um and just other stuff was floating next to him as I went to go get the the flares that or that one flare. Fortunately for us, it wasn't sharks. He was screaming because as I got closer to him, I could hear him screaming. It's a fish boat. It's a fish boat. It's a fish boat.
1: What were you thinking? You were gonna do with it? sharks, Johnny.
0: I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I did. I don't know. I was just. I don't know.
1: But you were gonna. I, you were gonna get there. You were gonna do something.
0: Yeah. I guess I had to figure that one out there. I guess yeah. we're maybe we're gonna go. We're gonna go So yeah. So anyway. So yeah. I don't know. I don't know what I would. I mean, I just going to my buddy.
1: Punch him in the nose. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah well yeah exactly whatever it took (laughs) grab his gills bite him back i don't know yeah so i hear him screaming it's a fish boat it's a fish boat it's fish boat so i get there to him and it was it this was uh this was so cool i wish i well this is one thing i wish there could have been like a like a video of, of of just like a drone over even though there weren't drones in, but a drone over us watching what video of what was happening because this happened in such beautiful unison as well. So as far as us in the fishing community goes, you know, I don't care how good you are as a captain. I don't care how good you are as a mate. If you aren't a team, it ain't gonna happen. Yeah. A captain is only as good as a mate and a mate is only as good as his captain. And sometimes with crews, and they're the ones that like that crush it during tournaments. A lot of times, they're the ones that are clicking. At this moment, we were clicking so good. So it's like as I got to him, so Eric was already like in the process of rolling off the surfboard because it's like he already knew where I was going. I was in the process and I struck the flare. It was all in one, and all this was in perfect unison of motion. As he was, as he rolled off, he reached up flare went in his hand it was a, one of the red flares and i went to the into the back of the bag and um and loaded and got the, the the last bullet loaded in and got up on the surfboard and so this boat was off to our side half quarter mile something like that run along and so and of course they because it was so rough they weren't making much time uh, maybe 10 12 not something like that but still even at that speed you know when you come down it was a 50 foot uh bertram called the Sansui, and you know when they would the bow would come down the spray would come up and so they wouldn't go to see. So it was like, I was thinking about how I had to time this off his front quarter as he's on a rise so that he would see that fireball and not be, have it be covered by spray. And I was just at the point getting ready to, to squeeze the trigger. And all of a sudden I heard,
1: wow.
0: And I turned around and look, And it's the stem of the 72-foot in the ditch digger. So... So the first thought was like, wow. Then the second thought was like, for boat, it was like, oh, I mean, because when I say stem, I mean, I'm talking like Eric and I were like right off the very point of their bow. Oh, it was Yeah. The next thing was like, oh, no, we're going to get chopped up. Yeah. And and then, um, and then John coldered it all, I mean, he did an awesome job in those rough seas of taking that boat and spinning it around and um, to Eric and I.
1: So they saw and, you. Uh, they
0: saw you. Yeah. The, okay. Yeah. Well, they were running. So what it, they were running along. Typically when it's rough, you know, we'll let the bigger boat pound it down for the, for the boat mine, which is really cool. You know, last couple of years running that 66, being able to, to pound them down for the, and let my old captains follow me. But, you know, they were in line and then once they saw the debris, they're like, what in the world is all this mess? So they separated and they were running, they were kind of trying to run side by side, Hmm. um, to, to keep an eye out for whatever was about in front of them. And actually, um, it's, so when, they first saw us John said when he first saw us in the water that he thought we were maybe Haitians or Cubans or something like that when he saw their people and then he's like look when I saw that they were you know they're Caucasian faces I like I was like oh man these are the these are Americans you know you know because back then there were so many people trying to get out get out of Cuba and and mm-hmm. some and some of those other islands mm-hmm. because of all the, the the terrible stuff that was going on down there right and um then he spun around and I, uh, this is something else that I kind of that I've always kind of had a a, a regretful feeling about it, but it's not my fault. It's just the way it worked out. And so, you know, he spun around, they opened the tuna door on the back of that big old Viking. And, um, they were kind of like making our way. And I'll never forget like a, like a, a cap kind of like broken. It's like kind of like washed me up inside the boat. And I'll never forget the feeling of guilt that I had because I went into that cockpit before my captain. So it's like, I don't know where the strength came from, but you know, I was like pushing across the mate and just scrambling to get back and grab Eric. So I grab Eric, and, um, and drug and, and help to get, drag him in the boat. And then I, hit Eric, and then the surfboards kind of were so, were, you know, that stern, that tuna door was on the, um, the starboard stern corner. And I, I remember kind of watching the surfboard kind of float off, um, to that side. And, uh, and Eric was looked at me as like, Hey, buddy, I'm sorry about your surfboard. And I'm like, Don't worry about the surfboard. And then I told him what the condition of the surfboard was. So, um, so then anyway, for then, uh, you know, that's when it hit. Uh, you know, that's I don't think I had really cried, but then, um, that's when the, the emotion hit about what we had been through. And, um, and the thing that really kind of gets it is, you know, it was, the sun was down. Um, it was about to get dark. And I knew that, and, and I, I, even though, I, you know, I had great faith at that moment with what had happened, kind of knew that we wouldn't make it through the night. Um, oh. and that was kind of verified by other people later on that, um, And they told me that you know they because of Eric's condition with the more advanced uh, hypothermia that they they, that people had said that he wouldn't have made it much you know much longer and um, I've learned a lot about that since then but the thing was is they this is funny so anyway so we get inside and the mate's kind of a I mean I'm I'm like six foot and the mate wasn't six foot and neither was John so. Um, they they had brought us some clothes to try to keep us warm, and I remember putting those pants on. and like the like the pants came up to like halfway up my shin, and like the sleeve on the sweatshirt I put on was like somewhere between my elbow and my wrist. And but I was thankful to have it. But uh, when John came down, you know, because it was an enclosed flybridge, so it had the internal st- st- uh, staircase. So he came down, and you know, of course, he and Eric were good buddies, and um, <laughs> and so he asked first thing he asked, "Well, y'all want a rum and coke?" <laughs> we are like, "No, no water, water. We just want water, please." <laughs>
1: <laughs> that story is called Lost in the Stream, the Miraculous Story of Two Fishermen Lost at Sea. That's by Johnny Savage, who we've had the wonderful time to talk to today. We well, thank you so much uh again for sharing your time, Johnny, and, and for sharing this story. And uh yeah, go pick up a copy, everybody, and and uh and share it with someone else too while you're at it. So thank you again, Johnny, for being here and uh hope that uh, you have many more adventures to come and many more um inspiring ways that you can you can help sh- uh, share hope with others. So uh, you have a great day and, and uh, hope to hope to hear from you soon.
0: All right. Thank you, Shane. I really appreciate it.
1: I hope everyone enjoyed this story. I'm sure you're inspired. I know I am. And I uh, can't wait to hear more like it and to share more like it. That being said, just to conclude... I wanted to share one more thing about our sponsor, Imtra, with hundreds of different thruster sizes and styles from Sleipner to offer, Imtra is the best source for your bow and stern thruster needs. So whether you have pre-sale questions or need post-sale troubleshooting and service, Imtra offers unparalleled support. They've got a full-time team of proud product experts, and they're ready to help. So go ahead and give them a call. Their number is 508-995-7000, or visit imtra.com to get all the answers to your thruster questions. So that's going to do it for us here at Power & Motor Yacht Podcast. We'll see you on the water.